0: Today, electric vehicles are everywhere, and there's a pretty strong consensus that they're here to stay. And this week's Down to Business, we'll begin a series that looks at the economy forming around the heart of these vehicles, the battery. We'll call it Dispatches from the Battery Economy. My guest this week is Dan Blondal, the chief executive of Burnaby-based Nano One Materials Corp. I met Dan several years ago, around 2018, when there was very little electric vehicle industry to speak of in Canada. And so his company, Nano One, which had developed an efficient and lower waste way to develop battery cathodes, which you can think of as the part of the battery that supplies current, were licensing their technology, primarily in China, where there was already a thriving EV and battery market. Today, Nano One has pivoted its focus to North America, And so we spoke about how shifting geopolitical winds, including increased tensions between Canada and China, have caused the company to rethink its strategy and how Nano One navigated the shifting market conditions during the pandemic. As always, the interview is edited for clarity and brevity. Hey, Dan, it's great to talk to you. Welcome to Down to Business. Yeah, thanks, Gabe. appreciate being here. I think yesterday you signed a deal with U.S. company to collaborate on creating a North American supply of lithium phosphate cathode materials. That's sort of a mouthful, but your company seems to be striking deals left and right. Can you tell me a little about what the latest one is aimed at?
1: Yeah, uh, so Nano One, our company, which is developing methods for making cathode materials, signed a joint development agreement with Our Next Energy, more commonly known as One, which is kind of confusing with our name, Nano One. But uh, (laughs) what that deal is about is we have North America's only LFP production facility, lithium iron phosphate, located just outside of Montreal. And Aronex Energy, our, our technology company as well, developing a, a new format for lithium iron phosphate batteries. And And we are co-developing the use of our lithium iron phosphate materials inside their lithium iron phosphate batteries. And the, the idea here is that they're trying to make up a longer range, higher energy density battery, and we come to the table with basically a lower cost way of making the materials that go in that battery. And at the same time, we drive down the complexity, environmental footprint, the energy intensity and CO2 footprint, and we bring up kind of a North American solution that really decouples us from the Asian supply chains who largely control the space right now.
0: So I'm by no means an expert on batteries, but 10 years ago when smartphones came out, people were like, it has a lithium ion battery. And there was this talk about lithium iron phosphate batteries, but people said those use iron. Iron's really heavy. Lithium is not. A couple of years ago, we we're not talking about lithium iron phosphate. Today, you're more focused on that. Can you talk to me a little bit about what's been going on with lithium iron phosphate?
1: Yeah, maybe very quickly. I mean, there are a variety of different kinds of cathode materials and lithium, and the cathode material defines the type of battery. So there is lithium iron phosphate, there's lithium nickel, manganese, cobalt, there's lithium manganese oxide, and and there's a variety of different types. We have a technology, what we, what we call our one pot process that allows to make any of them. And, And as I said earlier, drive down the sort of the complexity and the cost, the environmental footprint, and the energy intensity of making these materials. And Uh, We actually have always uh, had a a strong focus on LFP or lithium iron phosphate. However, the market really wasn't interested in it until quite recently. I would say it started to happen about two, three years ago. China has always had an interest. We had partnerships in China on the LFP front until a couple of years ago, until we started to see that kind of separation of North American and really Asian or Chinese supply chains. And we bet on LFP because listen, iron iron is while it's in great abundance, and ideally if we can find a battery grade version of iron uh, to go into LFP, then uh, we can create a you know a battery material that doesn't have to have the kind of constraints that that cobalt and nickel and other materials are in shorter supply put on the, the space. LFP is the longest-lived, safest, and lowest-cost lithium-ion battery. It doesn't have quite the energy density of the nickel-based materials, but all the Gen 3 batteries now in, in vehicles using LFP are getting up to or five, 600-kilometer range, which basically suffices for pretty much anyone driving the vehicle.
0: Sorry, iron is heavier. So how did this happen? Are they using bigger batteries? How did you do this? Was this some sort of feat of metallurgy, or what was it?
1: Well, listen, iron and nickel and cobalt really don't weigh that much different from each other. But at the end of the day, the, the physical weight of the battery isn't that much different. The, the issue with LFP has always been that it didn't deliver quite as much energy. Basically, it doesn't store as much energy in the cathode material itself. But because it's a safer material, all these Gen 3 batteries have been able to just pack more cells closely together between the wheels. The pack level, which is basically the, the big battery pack that goes in the vehicle, you can pack more cells and more material and that gives you basically longer range and that is ultimately what we're starting to see in all these density packs we didn't do anything there that's all you know the pack designers uh, the cell producers that have figured that out and some of the electric vehicle companies in china figured all this out and that's resulted in it being somewhere between 60 to 70 percent of the market share in china is uh is lithium iron phosphate we fully expect that to happen in north america and europe and right now it's at zero so there's nothing but a wall of demand coming for this. And we're super well positioned here with a with a low cost technology that can compete with China and a, and a plant and a team just outside of Montreal that is, that is unique in North America.
0: Okay, I want to pause right there and ask you about that because you just said LFP, lithium iron phosphate batteries have about 60 to 70% of market share in China and of 0% in North America, which is all lithium ion batteries, much denser. When did you understand that the technology was shifting to lithium iron phosphate and how did you know for sure?
1: Yeah, I think as a company starting in the space, in a pre-commercial stage, we have to make a bet on a lot of different trends. And there are nickel-based lithium-ion batteries and manganese-based and iron-based lithium-ion batteries. And they all have different strengths and weaknesses. Some of them are better at charging, some some of them are cheaper, some of them are safer. And they all address different parts of the of the energy storage market. We continue to do development work on all of those. However, uh, we saw a fundamental shift in thinking probably starting in 2020, just as COVID was kind of kicking in. Basically, on the environmental side, what we started to see is a strong interest in improving the environmental footprint of what was going on. It was always part of our underlying uh, our, our underlying strategy to reduce the energy intensity, to use cleaner supply chains. Um, however, there wasn't really any interest in in, in making those kind of changes until about twenty twenty, sort of January twenty twenty time frame. And since then, our narrative and, and what we bring to the table with our process has allowed us to really reach into that market and make changes.
0: Yeah. I mean, talk to me about that. What changed in January 2020? I mean, there weren't really many companies making EVs except for Tesla, just a couple models at that time. I'm curious, was this coming from the automakers or where were you hearing this?
1: Well, I think that the thing to understand is, is we solve three kind of fundamental issues, one of which we talked about a couple of years ago, which is what we call the single crystal cathode, which, uh, which allows you to c- coat the cathode powder. So so cathode material is just a powder. It looks like coffee grounds when it comes off the manufacturing line. And, and each grain of powder has c- protective coatings on it, and, but those tend to fall apart as you cycle the batteries, as you charge and discharge and charge and discharge the battery. So we've found a way to apply the coatings down at a, at a more, apply coatings to, within to the little tiny particles within the particles. And that allows it uh, to, to bring more protection and, and give more longevity and durability. So that's the, that's the problem that we were describing to you two, three years ago. But really the big, big things that we're solving are now. Very much in the zeitgeist and very much of a really big concern and interest to the automotive OEMs and the big, big miners. And that is reducing the amount of waste and call it tailings from, from the manufacturing of cathode materials. We completely eliminate sodium sulfate as a waste stream. And we also enable the use of much more energy efficient furnaces. And it's those two things, the elimination of waste and the simplification of the thermal process of cooking these materials in the final stage that give us a really big advantage, just driving down again, cost and complexity, but also eliminating a really big wasteful supply chain and much less use of water. All of these things being extremely important to very large volume manufacturing. And that's what's changed in the last three to four years. We basically take the raw material inputs, you know, be they iron, lithium or and, and phosphoric acid and combine them into lithium iron phosphate or we would do the same thing with lithium nickel manganese and cobalt but we're able to go directly from metals like iron metal powder or nickel metal powder without having to go through an intermediate chemical form which is what the way it's done everywhere else in the world Right now, they go through nickel sulfate, cobalt sulfate, so they have to get to this sulfate form of the the metal, an iron sulfate, before they mix it with the other materials like phosphoric acid or the the nickel, magnesium, cobalt, all come together. The problem is that the sulfate's just a carrier. You don't want it in the product. It all comes out as a byproduct. The sulfate comes out as a byproduct. And it's two to three times the product stream. And if you're recycling the battery, it's four to five times the product stream. So the issue is that while we're making these cathode materials around the world today, we're stockpiling all this sodium sulfate, and there's nothing to do with it. You can't uh, landfill it because it's highly soluble. People are dumping it in oceans and rivers, and and it's very expensive to recycle it because it takes a lot of energy, and it's capitally very intensive.
0: And there's literally no use for it. Well, there is, but it's a saturated use. It gets used in
1: construction materials. It gets used in... Uh, Uh, detergents, and and it gets used in in fertilizers. But those markets are already saturated. Uh, We don't need more of it. (laughs) That's the
0: problem. (laughs) This is interesting, this evolution of the supply chain towards focusing on efficiencies, eliminating waste, the simplification of the thermal process of cooking these. This is really the nitty gritty of how do we produce batteries at scale in the cheapest, most efficient, least wasteful way, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, you you totally hit the nail on the head there. It's it's about scale. So you know, in the early nineties, there were literally thousands of tons of material being made, and then ten thousands, and, and we're kind of just coming out of the hundreds of thousands of tons of material. And at those kind of scales, you, you could kind of sweep the the garbage under the rug, and and it had minimal kind of impact on the environment. But as we move into millions and tens of millions of tons to serve this kind of future net zero, multi-tens or multi-hundreds of terawatt hours of battery, we can no longer tolerate that. So it's a scale issue. We have to, in a way, we have to start thinking a bit like petrochemical companies. Like we have to think like big oil refineries and we're going to be making massive volumes of these materials. We have to be good stewards of the environment. We have to be good stewards of the waste streams that are created there. We either have to find a, you know alternative perk for the waste streams or we have to eliminate them. Our strategy is to eliminate it completely. We create no waste and we have no waste water. And that is what is grabbing the interest, of course, of the, of the automotive OEMs and, and, and a lot of the big miners. They realize that these things have to be removed from the supply chain. And that led to the relationship we have with Rio Tinto and the relationship we're building with the big electric vehicle companies as well.
0: It's interesting to look at your company as what's been happening with the battery market in North America, in Europe. I was looking at your stock and I remember in tw- or mid-2020, Just after US President Biden came into office, I think your stock and a lot of other so-called green energy or battery metal companies hit an all-time high. And then since came down and subsequently your company has been having a lot of series of peaks, like it's by no means doing poorly. I personally have trouble following all the deals your company has made and the ways in which it's transformed. But I'm wondering what it's been like to be in this extremely volatile, fast-growing market.
1: Listen, Gabe, it's often very tricky. Uh, Of course, um, (laughs) some, some investors live and die by the stock price every day. And that creates noise, of course, for us. Um, We're trying to create a, you know, a long-term company here. We're trying to create value in the supply chain. And it's complex, you know, because we're dealing with literally our inputs are lithium and nickel and manganese and cobalt and iron and phosphorus and aluminum and niobium. And there's all these pieces that have to come together. Every one of those supply chains is, is different than each other because they, they come from different jurisdictions. They are controlled by different market mechanisms. And so really getting the strategy on you know, learning about all of that has become a you know big part of, of what we've had to do. At the same time, we're right in the middle of it. You know, we kind of we're between the mining and the battery. But it is the cathode process. It's the process not so much the chemistry, but it's the process for making those chemicals, for making the that that defines the supply chain. And what we've determined is that we can disrupt that supply chain and make it better. And, you know, four years ago, no one wanted to do that because it was just, oh, well, that seems like a lot of work. Why don't we just do it the way we've always been doing it? And now everyone's starting to say, well, uh, well, maybe we can't continue doing it the way we've always been. We need to change the process, and that's you know fundamentally what we saw uh, years ago. And uh, you know we're now starting to finally hit our stride as the market realizes, you know, we, we can't get to net zero without solving some of these problems and really resolving the underlying process to make the stuff that goes into batteries. And and so it, yeah, it's a, it's a long struggle. I think we've always had a long vision. It's nice to be finally feeling the rewards of that. Of course, the, uh, the capital markets have shrunk considerably since uh, we did our last raise, which was two years ago, ready right to peak. So we're we're well we're well funded we have a good treasury we're healthy but it doesn't mean you know we don't feel the, the pains of of the market day in and day out but we you know look we just have to continue to use our treasury wisely and execute on our plans and and meet our goals and continue to put all these kind of key partnerships in place.
0: I mean one of the things that happened I guess in the last few years happened after your stock peaked in 2020 long after happened I mean, in 2022 the U.S. passed the Inflation Reduction Act which is estimated to pour something like a trillion dollars into the green economy, however you want to define that. Suffice to say, it's going to pour a lot of money into companies working in this space. And I'm sure you've been affected, but I wonder if it's been a game changer since you're a Canadian company, not a U.S. company. How has it had an impact on your business?
1: Well, I think fundamentally the Inflation Reduction Act is what it's doing is trying to create a basically an ecosystem within the U.S. but also within North America. It's got, it, it has very sort of wide-ranging applications. It's trying to create an ecosystem for technology and for companies that are just starting up and just starting to build batteries. And this, whether you're talking about the, the large OEMs or even the, you know smaller companies like ourselves, creates an ecosystem for those companies to thrive. And, and build up to to be able to be competitive with the Asian markets. We need this kind of protective umbrella for everything to grow here without the threat of being kind of undercut continually from Asia. And that is, that's fundamentally what it's meant to do. And it's provided a tremendous amount of catalyst for, for Nano One. You know, we don't directly see, let's say money that comes out of the DOE uh, Department of Energy in the US, but we could see money out of the Department of Defense and the State Department and and various other entities. What we see is companies like Our Next Energy, who are benefiting from the IRA and the DOE. We can see the the money that's going into them flowing to us as partners. So there's indirect access to some of those funds, and there also is direct access through other departments um, in, the, uh, in the US government. I think we're largely seen as a strategically important initiative. In North America, not just in Quebec, not just by the Canadian government, but also by the, by the U.S. government. I was in D.C. last week and, you know, people are listening. They're listening to what we're doing because we are solving some very sort of fundamental issues and we have a North American answer. We're one of the only companies in, in the world with a North American answer. Like, how do we build a North American supply chain? And uh, that's, you know, that's resonating very, very well, both in D.C., Washington and, and in
0: Quebec as well. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Nano One went from basically developing this very complicated cathode process that eliminates waste to becoming a battery manufacturer itself. You bought a lithium iron phosphate manufacturing plant in Quebec. You struck deals with miners as a result. That's an interesting path to manufacturing. And I'm wondering why you never started with manufacturing at the start of the company.
1: Yeah, um, it's a great question. I would say that most of the world today that's built out of lithium ion batteries and the supply chains that feed it, have largely gone with a status quo, and so that means that they're basically trying to fulfill today's needs. They're trying to put batteries between wheels today, and to do that, you can't really take in technological risk. You just got to take how it's been made today and make it bigger and wider and longer and faster and deeper kind of thing to uh, to feed the supply chain. We chose to change the underlying process. We chose to build a, uh, a technology for the long term future. We, we took a look at three years out, five years out, 10 years out, and tried to solve some of the big problems that we've talked about before, like the waste streams and the water usage and the energy intensity issues that are related to the the current process. And and it's a long game to do that. We couldn't just begin manufacturing the materials. We had to develop the partnerships, develop the supply chains. We had to prove out the technology because no one wants to commit to buying it until they know you can make it in volume. And that led us to a point of about a year and a half ago where we started partnership discussions with BASF, with Rio RioTin, and our discussions to buy Johnson Matthews battery material business in Canada, which was effectively this lithium iron phosphate cathode plant that we bought in Quebec. And that gave us a vehicle, a platform to launch our technology from, and it also enabled us to prove out our technology by manufacturing, by becoming a credible threat in the space. So all of a sudden, we now have not only the technology for manufacturing this and a licensing strategy, but we also have the ability to prove it out in a pure production place in North America. So while well, it's a continuation of what we had set out to do, our strategy shifted a little bit when that opportunity came up because it enabled us to really kind of put our money where our mouth was and show that we can do it. In a way, it's a bit, it's a bit backwards when we have still have a licensing strategy, but we have, this, we have this ability to produce and prove that it actually works and that we believe will lead not only to production opportunities, but also to abilities to work with our, some of our competitors to license our technology to them and, and benefit from their uh, success and growth as well.
0: Right. And I think key, you can tell me this, is that it was an existing plant. Often today when I look at large industrial projects, there's some component of it that's pre-existing. It's much easier to find something that already exists than it is to build one of these plants from scratch. And I wonder if the opportunity to purchase this plant in Quebec hadn't existed if Nano One would have thought about building its own. And if you did think about that, what some of the considerations were?
1: Ah, very interesting question. So so yes, we had been thinking about it and we had hired the former general manager of that plant, the guy, uh, his name is Denis Geoffroy and he had actually developed, designed, built, and ran that plant for a period of uh, 17 years. We had hired him just prior to making a bid on it uh, to develop a Quebec plan. And then all of a sudden, Johnson Matthew put it on the market and we said, uh-oh, well, uh, we're going to shelve plan A we're going to go Plan B because it's way faster. At the end of the day, we acquired the only plant in North America making LRP. It, it has some issues, and our one pot process solved them. It came with a team of 50 people who had been operating that plant for 10 years. It's the most experienced cathode team in North America, and it came with the permits and with extra land to expand the, the capabilities and capacity of the plant. And it just so happened to have all the right equipment in it for us to, to incorporate our one pot process. So we acquired it, uh, to close the deal on, no- on November 1st last year. And over the last six months, we've been retrofitting, basically decommissioning a whole bunch of the wastewater and, uh, and waste material handling because we don't have any of that. So we, the plant's much emptier than it was uh, when we bought it. And now we are retooling it and retrofitting it with our one pot process and bringing it back up to speed. We think we're, we've got a multi-year head start on anybody, partly because of the experience, partly because of the, you know, the team and of course the permits and the equipment and everything like that allow us to go way faster. And that fundamentally gives us a really, really big advantage rather than actually starting from scratch, which is, as you said, when you ask the question, it's a much, much harder task to undertake. And that's really what everyone else is facing. They're all starting from scratch and we have this tremendous sort
0: of head start. Were there, just curious about the deal itself, were there other companies bidding for this? Yes. There were, okay, it was a competitive process, huh? Yes, yeah, that's correct. How long did it take to put together?
1: It basically took a year for us to, uh, to close the deal from wow. the time we put
0: the first bid in. I see, it would be interesting one day to find out what some of the other companies had in mind for it since there, there aren't really that many companies doing what Nano One does.
1: I can answer that very quickly. Most other companies looked at just buying the plant and operating it like it was already operating. We took a very unique approach. We bought the plant, we terminated all the contracts, and we stopped production. Retooling the plant to make it a much lower cost operation. And that's, uh, that's the really key thing is here. We very much extended the life of that plant by making it way more efficient and and enabled it to grow to much, much larger volume because the existing way of making LP in that plant was just unscalable. It's too costly. It had waste streams and all kinds of things that are, that were really just didn't scale into large volume.
0: And will the batteries go to a different end use? Uh yes,
1: ultimately, or the cathode uh, rather. Yeah, the the, cap, the cathode will go into batteries that are, that are used in energy storage market in hybrid, light hybrid vehicles, in electric vehicles, and basically any any application you can almost think of. Okay. Uh, so a very very wide range of different applications. We'll start with smaller applications because then we're going to start at smaller volumes. Ultimately, our goal is to be you know, building factories that are uh, are big enough to supply the
0: automotive industry. Amazing. I want to ask you about something else I've been talking a lot about the last time we spoke because it's been several years, but I looked it up. It was it was actually in February 2020, and I was at the time helping out someone else in our newsroom on a story about oyster sales, of all things, which at that time, February 2020, were plummeting because China was in the thick of its shutdown in British Columbia sells many of its oysters into the Chinese market. And so I think I was asked to report on companies that were also being affected by what was still being called at the time the novel coronavirus. And I knew that you were planning to head out to Shanghai for a conference. And I wanted to just pause and ask you about your pandemic experience as the CEO of a company at the time which had its main market in China.
1: Yeah. Um, actually, it's such an interesting time. Um, January, as I mentioned earlier, in January 2020, we saw a turn in the capital markets. And that's largely, there was suddenly a strong interest in anything to do with ESG, you know, environmental, sustainable, and governance type of deals. And we had been poised and ready for for financing, And we triggered something off in January, and we closed it right at, right at the end of February, just as the You know, the window was slamming shut on the capital markets. We pulled in our, we pulled in an $11 million financing kind of non brokered private placement arrangement. And, and that actually gave us, you know, a tremendous amount of lift as everything else shut down all around the world. Yes, we had to cancel conferences. I didn't go to Shanghai Uh, and didn't go to a lot of things after that. You know, for the next month and a half, like everybody else, we were trying to figure out, you know, how to work from home. We were well positioned on that. Like every one of our employees has a laptop and and I'd always encouraged the idea of working at home to to most of our employees. So it was was relatively straightforward for us to figure out how to learn, you know, use Teams and and Zoom and and go from there. But but what we found out really, really quickly after that is, we're a laboratory. We need all hands on experience and we just developed all the systems we needed to have to get people into work safely. And we never had a shutdown in, in, uh, in British Columbia. So that was very fortunate. We didn't force people home. We were back by May, June timeframe. We were back in the lab working 89% there and the remaining 10, 20% people were at home writing their reports, answering emails and it, and it worked out fine. By the time summer hit, we were actually in a pretty much operating as we as we normally had, with, with some like some slight changes, some slight inconveniences, but and, and the government of Canada stepped up to support us. So we got some additional monies on top of the grants we already had, uh, which was tremendous for us. Uh, travel got way easier. I didn't have to travel for quite a while. Um, I uh, personally enjoyed the uh, the extra time that afforded me. But you know, by and large, we you know took a couple months. But once we were adjusted, everything went along quite soon. And of course, the markets were fantastic for the next year and a half.
0: Right. It was surprised everyone how well the markets did. I mean, when did you actually end up going to China, by the way?
1: Oh, I haven't been to China since, uh, since pre-COVID. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We, we've actually basically closed down one of the partnerships we had in China, yeah, partly because we, you know, we saw the relationships deteriorating in Canada and North America. We could sense that in the markets, even, even the retail investors were getting really cagey about China, even in 2019. We got a sense that really anything touching China was just a little bit toxic in the, in the capital markets. So. We started to back off on some of our relationships in China because we realized in in the end, it probably wasn't all that good for our business. So we got out early before a lot of other people did and, and then started developing other partnerships. That's when BASF and Umicore and Rio Tinto and of course, you know, projects like the one we just announced with our next energy all sort of came into fruition with players that were working outside of outside of China, outside of Asia and bringing those to the forefront because in the end, they were kind of more sustainable and more palatable. To things like the, the inflation reduction, I could we could see that coming. We didn't know what form it was going to come in, but we could see see that kind of rhetoric, that kind of North American supply chain, the repatriation of supply chains kind of coming into form. So we positioned ourselves for that, and uh, and we were we were ready when it came.
0: Yeah, I mean, you were lucky in a sense. Like other companies had years earlier, even other Canadian companies operating in parallel spaces related to the green economy, cut deals with Chinese companies where they took investments from them. They built manufacturing facilities in China. They had really sort of banked on producing for the Chinese market and are kind of locked into that track. Was it really just that you could tell from speaking to investors that people felt there was a need to create an independent supply chain, totally absent from the supply chain hiccups and independence that the pandemic raised?
1: Well, like a good, a good part of its timing, we were in a, a stage of our company was in was in the right place at the right time. But we also, you know, we did listen to the uh, the capital markets. We did, we could see the signals in the capital, and we could also see the signals down in the U.S. Really, really uh, to largely from the, the large OEMs. I mean, they, you could see that they needed to commit to North American supply. You could see, you know, 10 years before that, we knew China was going after the automotive market, and that's why we were over there. But then as the the rest of the world, as, as you know, Volkswagen, GM, and Ford, and Stellantis, and every, everyone else started to wake up, we realized that there was gonna be a push towards a regionalization of supply chains. So uh, we could see that coming as well. But, Timing was such that we hadn't cut any, any, any uh, buying deals with China, so it was actually relatively easy for us to back out of that before it was too late.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talked about this, that you could see that there was a separation of North America and Asian supply chains was coming. And I remember at that time, the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, wrote his annual letter talking about ESG. And that was a driver for a lot of people to start, a lot of companies to start looking at climate change more seriously at the time that was being cited. But since then, more of what I've heard is kind of the pandemic showed how, what happens when we don't have pharmaceutical companies, when, you know, it was sort of a, kind of looking at it more, not from a climate perspective, from a global supply chain perspective, as someone who experienced it, what were the indicators you were seeing? Was it just the sort of talk from politicians on the presidential campaign trail? What do you remember most clearly from that time?
1: Look, the average person didn't know what a supply chain was until COVID came along, and, and until a big freighter got stuck in the Suez Canal. Like those are the two things that really, really brought it brought it into the uh, into the forefront and made it. You know, may, I think made everyone realize how fragile our, our supply chains were and that we needed to make them more resilient, more robust. We need to localize components of the supply chain so that we could withstand, you know, hiccup that, that were out there. So we, we saw those signals the same time as everyone else. And what we had uniquely at Nano One was the ability to redefine the supply chains. Imagine a way to, to use iron and nickel and, and cobalt that didn't have to be run through refineries in China, like, For instance, with with Rio Tinto, the partnership developed around the notion that they make uh, iron metal powder. So basically, they they atomize molten iron uh, into a form of powder that's used in to stamp out uh, metallic parts. As the vehicle market starts to electrify its drivetrains, there are less mechanical parts being made for cars, and so there's less need for those powders. Perfect off-ramp for us to take that iron metal powder and move it directly into, into LFP. It's already a high purity, high grade, automotive approved supply chain that actually could feed directly into lithium iron phosphate. And uh, no one else had seen that. We, we saw that as a, as a really big opportunity here to create something. If it's actually because it's a metallurgical process, there's no waste because it's done in Quebec in their plant in uh, just north of Montreal. It's all done hydroelectric power. It's the cleanest, greenest and probably fastest way to make an, a totally North American IRA-compliant supply chain for the lithium-ion battery space. and That's the vision that brought Rio Tinto and Nano 1 together and very much driven by this idea uh, of localizing supply chains and making them more resilient and long-lasting. So hopefully that kind of paints a good picture of where it comes from.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talk about the resiliency of supply chains And you talk about that it's done with clean energy and your process eliminates waste. And so climate change is sort of linked to that resilience of supply chains. But some of this is done under the guise of climate change and supply chain resiliency, when really what we're actually talking about is China is a superpower. We don't want to become economically beholden to them. Like there there are certain geopolitical currents to this that only became a threat at a certain point. Is that something you also felt?
1: Yeah, oh, for sure. It's a strategic imperative. You know, the, the, other, the other thing that everyone felt was, of course, the chip shortage. Chip shortage, we have chips in everything, right? We have left, actually been largely manufactured in Taiwan, but China also has a big part of that supply chain. So the threat of chip shortages, the threat of China dominating most of the refining of metals that go into the batteries, no one wants to be beholden to that. No one wants to see it weaponized. I'm not convinced that weaponization is the route that's going to happen. But the reality is that just having that reliance on foreign supply chains that might be insecure poses a geopolitical risk and a geopolitical threat to, you know, North America, to Europe, to uh, other areas in the Indo-Pacific region. And so you've seen the government step up to try and tighten that up and reduce that risk. You know, the U.S. sees it as a, you know, a fundamental threat to their security. And because it also threatens the large OEMs, you know, it's threatening the you know, the largest sort of corporations in in North America. And so there's been this, you know, the ecosystems coming together to try and resolve this problem. So long answer to your question was yes, the uh, the geopolitical security threat was was very real. And I don't look, I don't think we really realized it. We saw it a little bit earlier than some other people, but but mostly we're reading the tea leaves a little earlier than everybody else. But it's 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 very it's very real.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe just time for one last question, which is we've talked a lot about kind of how these forces—climate change, supply chain, pandemic, geopolitical tensions with China have resulted in new opportunities for companies like Nano One to change their business, you know, go from licensing technology to actually playing ahead in manufacturing. A North American market is developing, if you look at a chart of battery technology right now, it's not just lithium-ion batteries and lithium-phosphate batteries. There's something like 64, so just dozens and dozens of different battery chemistries out there. Any predictions about what we'll see in the battery market chemistry-wise?
1: Yeah, look, Nano One fundamentally believes in process innovation, that's where our, our big push is. Like, how do you improve lithium iron phosphate? How do you improve nickel, manganese, cobalt, the production of that uh, to make it you know, high-volume production worthy? But You know, there's going to be continual evolution in different chemistries. There's half a dozen key uh, cathode materials, there's half a dozen different anode materials, then you've got the electrolyte in between. There's solid and liquid and polymer electrolytes. So when you combine all of those, you probably get well over 64. We need it all to work. We need to be working collectively. There is no winner. Each combination serves the market in a different way. As I said, some of them are safer and some of them are cheaper. Some of them are longer lasting. Some of them charge faster. Some of them have more range and durability, and each one of them serves different parts of the market. And the other thing is that from a supply chain point of view, we need diversity in the supply chain. We need iron-based batteries nickel-based batteries and manganese-based batteries because having a little bit more LFP on the market gives a little bit more breathing room to nickel. There's no shortage of demand. There's no shortage of growth trajectory here for any one of these chemistries. Uh, they're all going to be maxed out and so that's really important is that we have the right blend of all of these to ease the the burden on the supply chain but also to address a, a wide range of different markets. So your your handheld tool has very different needs than a car than your phone than a bus or a forklift every one of them has really different needs and the chemistry is all kind of addressing them in different ways and the supply chains to you know fulfill them have their own constraints and that then also drives sort of different adoption circles so uh, you know we think there's tremendous growth on all fronts. We have our play on each one of them. LFP will be our first commercial opportunity. We try to stay nimble. We have a process that can kind of address any one of those markets without completely blowing ourselves up and working on everything at 100% of the time. You know, we, we try to stay relevant with each one of them and we try to shift our strategy to accommodate some of the shifting sands in the market as well. Uh, to say by and large, uh, we'd be pretty accurate to where we think it's going to go. And that's by thinking long term and thoughtfully about what the market needs, what customers do really need, what the people say they need. and And that's allowed us to guess uh, pretty accurately where the market's going to go. I'll so, uh, try to get a try to stick to where the puck is as they say or where state skate where the where the puck will be
0: right. Well, congratulations on all the deals and success your company has had. And thank you for coming on down to business, Dan.
1: Great. And we really appreciate the opportunity, Gabe, and and great to speak with you again and look forward to more of
0: it. That was Dan Blondahl, CEO of Nano One Materials Corp based out of Burnaby, British Columbia. And that's this week's episode of Down to Business. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music on the show, designed the logo, and executive produced this episode. Victoria Wells, Pamela Heaven, and Noella Ovid provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with more episodes for now. Thank you for listening to Down to Business. Thank you for supporting us by sharing episodes. In the meantime, until your next episode release, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.